major improvements in oncology outcomes when patients self-report symptoms. Today, I speak with Ethan Bosch, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, Dr. Ethan Bosch talks about a randomized clinical trial in RCT where 766 patients used a web-based system to self-report symptoms that triggered alerts to clinicians. The results were impressive. There are learnings and inspiration in this episode for anyone pursuing better patient outcomes with special relevance for organizations rolling with a value-based care model. Dr. Bosch is an oncologist and currently the Director of Cancer Outcomes Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Ethan Bosch, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks. It's nice to be here. You have created a web-based system for self-reporting symptoms that helps patients live longer. Do you want to talk about this work that you have recently completed? In this study, we set out to ask a fairly simple question, whether providing a system to patients to self-report their own symptoms during cancer treatment with that information conveyed electronically to their providers, would using such a system improve their clinical outcomes. And in order to test this, we designed this trial, this randomized controlled trial in which patients came into the study and we assigned them, again randomly, to one of two groups. In the first group, we provided them with a web system into which they could enter 12 very common symptoms that people commonly experience during cancer treatment, such as fatigue, pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. We unfortunately see these very frequently across different kinds of cancers. And they would report these on a weekly basis from home and into either a tablet computer or a kiosk when they came to visits. And any time that they reported something concerning, say a severe symptom or a symptom that was getting worse, it would automatically send an email alert to their nurse saying, Mrs. Jones's nausea has been getting worse since whatever prior uh, date Mrs. Jones had reported. And that was really the extent of the intervention. In the control arm, people were assigned to their usual care, the way that we conduct our general symptom monitoring during cancer treatment, which is to say that when patients come in for a visit, we might discuss those symptoms during the encounter. And between visits, if patients experience something concerning, they can pick up the phone and call. Or if they're using, say, a patient portal system, they could send an electronic message to the practice. It sounds like the alerts were driven by trends. In other words, if one of the patients just today put in that they feel fatigued or that they feel nauseous, that might not have driven an alert? Well, we used a very particular questionnaire. We used a a patient version of a symptom and adverse event rating system that's maintained by the National Cancer Institute. It's called the CTCAE. So this was a patient version of the CTCAE. And without getting into too many details, it essentially provides patients with a a scale going between zero and four, 
And each number is rooted to specific clinical criteria. In the case of diarrhea, it might be the number of times that they had a stool during a given period of time. And so according to this scale, if a patient had a worsening by two points, or if they had a severe score, which would be really a three or a four, that would cross the threshold. And that was the, the software backend that would trigger an alert to the nurse. So if a patient started as a zero and went to a two, or started as a one and went to a three, or if they simply had a three, any of those events would trigger an alert to a nurse in real time. Got it. So basically you have an algorithm on the back end. Exactly. That fires. Yeah. And I should mention that that's a configurable algorithm because we use these kinds of systems in lots of different contexts. And so depending on the symptom, depending upon the patient population, those thresholds might change. In this particular setting, those are the thresholds that were set based on a fair amount of upfront work with patients and with clinicians. How many of those alerts were false positives? Say somebody just felt particularly tired or their finger slipped and they typed three or four when it may not be exactly accurate. Was that an issue? Yeah. So we know a couple of things from this study. The first thing that we know is about how the nurses responded to these alerts because that's something that we tracked systematically. And we know that in 76% of cases, the nurses responded to those alerts by contacting patients and changing their management. So that suggests that more than three quarters of the time, the alert that was coming in was actionable or was felt to be actionable by the nurse. We do have some anecdotal evidence about you know, whether patients made mistakes entering uh, and anecdotally, it seems that that was a very rare occurrence. Of course, people make mistakes with technologies all the time. There were a couple of cases where a patient entered something and then they sent us a message or contacted us uh, and said, listen, you know, I inadvertently, you know, selected severe and actually, you know, I'm not having this symptom at all. And that was something that we could just go in and fix. But that that was very unusual. And I should mention that, you know, there were 766 patients enrolled in this study, and some of them were enrolled in this study for years. So there were tens of thousands of individual symptom reports, and there were really almost no such cases. One of the pushbacks for patient-reported outcomes is people distrust the ability of patients to actually report their own outcomes. But that sounds like that was not your experience. You know, that actually is a criticism that has come up. I'd say that when I started more than 15 years ago, that kind of skepticism was not uncommon. You know, I call that kind of an old school clinician critique where, you know, a, a doctor or a nurse may feel that they actually understand the patient experience better than the patient does him or herself. They may think that some patients are exaggerators, some patients are downplayers, but the evidence just simply doesn't support that. You know, there's really overwhelming evidence at this point, both from my group and from multiple other groups showing that uh, patients answer questionnaires honestly and accurately, and that when this information is provided to clinicians, the clinicians believe it and act on it and think that it is a uh, a precise or true depiction of the patient experience. So, you know, to these old school clinicians who believe that they know better than their patients, you know, I would say the evidence just simply doesn't support uh, that belief. And you know, in the results of this study. I think, you know, they really speak for themselves, showing that 
introducing patient reporting into clinical care and into clinical trials, for that matter, adds a lot of benefit. With that spoiler alert, what were the results? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. So we found a number of really uh, striking results in this study. The first is that compared to the usual care patients, those patients who were self-reporting experienced significant and substantial improvements in their quality of life. We measured this at six months and we looked between the groups and those who were self-reporting both had more increases in quality of life scores and fewer decreases in quality of life scores. The second impressive finding was that those patients who were self-reporting had fewer emergency room visits. Uh, there was a significant decrease in the number of ER visits uh, over the course of the year, which seemed to be related to our catching symptoms early and intervening on them before they became severe. The third striking finding was that patients who were self-reporting were able to remain on chemotherapy treatment longer, on average two months longer than those patients receiving usual care. Again, related to this ability to catch symptoms early before they became severe, interfering with our abilities to successfully administer chemotherapy. And taken together, these factors probably account for really one of the, the most striking findings in this study, which is that compared to usual care, those patients who are self-reporting lived longer, on average 5.2 months longer compared to the usual care population. Which is an outstanding increase in survival time, which exceeds even some pharmaceuticals on the market. When these results were presented as a plenary session at the big cancer meeting, the, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, uh, annual meeting this year, the commentary on it actually put up a slide showing the survival benefits of all of the FDA-approved drugs over the past year, showing that the survival benefit of patient self-reporting was longer than all but one of those FDA-approved drugs. So in cancer population, this is really, a, you know, a, a very uh, substantial and meaningful survival benefit. And I'm going to assume that the cost of it is probably far less, thereby making it probably an excellent value. Uh, and the side effects. True. So talk about the moment when you realized that this thing might actually be working. Was it something you heard from a patient or a clinician? What occurred during the course of the trial that might have made you particularly optimistic? Well, I should take this back a number of years, really, to the inception of, of this kind of work. And, you know, very early on in my career, I observed that we were missing a lot of our patient symptoms. And this came through pretty clearly in clinical trials uh, during drug development, when we would look at the adverse event profiles of drugs that were recorded in databases based on clinician reporting, and it was it was obvious that a lot was missing. And, you know, many of us involved in this kind of work in, in clinical trials, we recognized this. And it got me to thinking that there was an opportunity to perhaps improve our ability to detect patient symptoms. And so we, we then went on to do studies where, where we started comparing patient self-reporting with clinician reporting of symptoms and side effects. And we found that, unfortunately, we clinicians miss about half of those symptoms and side effects that our patients are experiencing. And this really elucidated a big opportunity, an opportunity to catch those things that we aren't currently detecting. And this got me to thinking, if we can catch these patient experiences systematically and introduce them into how we're delivering care, 
we could probably improve the quality of the care that we're delivering. So, you know, very early on, we hypothesized that by improving our ability to detect the patient experience through self-reporting from our patients, this gave us a sense that we really could potentially improve those experiences of patients. And that was the impetus for doing this trial. Now, I would say that I wasn't that surprised that patients' quality of life was improved. But I was surprised that people were able to stay on chemotherapy longer. And I, I was really very, very surprised that this translated into a survival impact. I guess if you take a step back and you think about it, since symptom management is so essential in what we do as oncologists, I suppose it makes sense that improving symptom management would improve survival. And there are a number of different mechanisms by which one could think about you know, how this could happen. But I was absolutely surprised uh, when I saw this result. If you had to pick sort of one driver, why do you think the approach w was so successful? There is evidence from this trial suggesting the drivers. Now, you know, again, the study wasn't designed to specifically identify them, but the evidence is pretty good. You know, this trial suggests that symptoms were caught earlier and that nurses intervened on those symptoms. And as a result, a few things happened. The first is that patients had better physical functioning. We know this because we measured it. There was, you know, really substantial and significant improvement in patients' functioning. They were up and out of bed more. They were walking around more. And we know that when patients start to become more functionally disabled and they're in bed more, they're not mobile, that that's pretty tightly associated with worth survival. So, you know, keeping people physically functioning is a really positive thing in, in cancer populations. And by catching things like pain or fatigue early, we were able to keep people more mobile. And that probably translated into, you know, a, a, a survival benefit. I think the second is that, you know, as I mentioned, people were able to stay on chemotherapy longer, potentially pro, you know, life prolonging uh, chemotherapy by catching symptoms early People stayed on chemotherapy on average two months longer, and this probably also translated into uh, a survival benefit. And then the third, I think, was keeping people out of the hospital and out of the emergency room. We know that when people get into the cycle of winding up in the ER, winding up in the hospital, that that really starts a cycle that's very detrimental. You know, people are exposed to infection risk. They can become more functionally disabled because they're in a hospital bed. And so by keeping people out of the ER and out of the hospital, that probably had benefits too. So, you know, I would say that it's all of these downstream impacts of catching symptoms early and intervening on them that probably then translated into the survival benefit. And I could also see that it could definitely increase a patient's feeling that they're being cared for because they're not really in clinic that long. And then they go home and they're home for a really long time. And they might feel like out of sight, out of mind, and nobody knows what's going on with them. But the fact that they have this outlet that they can type in how they're feeling and they know that someone's going to look at it could really improve their, once again, you know, like their patient satisfaction or the feeling that they're being cared for. But in addition, I interviewed uh, someone from Cypher Health and he said there's one predictor that they use. They use this from hospital discharge. They, they do robocalls after hospital discharge. But he said there's one predictor where he can tell if someone's going to get readmitted. And that is the answer to one simple question. Do you feel better or worse than when you left the hospital? 
And if they say they feel worse, chances are they're going to get readmitted. But what this enables, exactly like you're saying, by catching that early, then they don't get to that inflection point where they will wind up going to the ER. So it might be a tenuous connection, but there's probably something there. We know that many people suffer silently at home. They're scratching their head wondering if they should call or, you know, being reticent to call because they they don't want to bother anybody or they're discouraged from calling because it's so difficult to get through or they don't really know who to get through to. You know, there's so many challenges to people when they're at home and it's not uncommon that I have a patient who comes in to see me and, you know, their, their, their partner or their spouse or their caregiver may say, look, my dad or my husband, they laid up in bed for a week after chemotherapy. And I say, you know, why, you know, Mr. Jones, why didn't you call? And he says, well, I didn't want to bother you, doc. It's not uncommon that people may think that it's actually normal to have that experience. And I think by lowering the threshold for communication and by systematically monitoring this information, either in the way that we did it or the way that the robocalls that you described did it, you know, it's just a better way to monitor how people are doing and to pick up that stuff that can, you know, really lead to downstream problems. Sometimes a patient may not be aware that are experiencing something that's concerning. You know, I think it's it's for us to use our collective experience to identify those things. You know, the patient may not realize that feeling worse after their surgery is a red flag in the way that we do. And we can capitalize on this knowledge clearly to improve the quality of the care that we're delivering. But I think to your other point, this can make people feel heard. I mean, this is something that we hear Uh, Time and again, from the patients who are involved in the work that that we're doing, people feel that they're engaged, they feel that they're better connected. Ironically, this is a case where technology can actually bring patients and providers closer together rather than being a wedge between them. It's a facilitator that can actually make us better connected, more efficiently connected, and enhance communication. So, you know, I think it's really a win all around. And and I do think to your point, it can make people feel that, you know, that they're being heard. You sort of were alluding to this, but I'm curious how you selected what symptoms for patients to report or what you've learned through your iterations. Because I can imagine that it must have been a challenge to find the right ones across multiple tumor types and overwhelm the clinic with non-significant information. Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of different ways to to go at this. The approach that we used was first, you know, we knew we couldn't ask too, too many questions. And this was a message we received loud and clear from our patient partners. Uh, The second was that we felt that what we were collecting should be actionable. And this was really a message that we got back from, from our clinician partners in doing this. There are some symptoms that are very important, very meaningful, but unfortunately, there's not a lot that we can do about them. They are important to talk about at visits, and they need to be talked about. But for an alert kind of a system like we have, they didn't really make sense. We were also interested in those kinds of symptoms that cause people to really have big downstream problems, those things that cause people to wind up in the emergency room or in the hospital or to miss their chemotherapy. And of course, the symptoms had to be meaningful to the patients, in particular, the patients across different diseases. So in taking these different factors together, this is how we we whittled down to the 12 symptoms that that we tested in this study. Now, I would say that, you know, in the newer approaches that we're using, we're trying to tailor much more to specific populations. So, you know, we're trying to use different 
symptoms in, in different patient groups. And we were also building in the ability for patients to add on additional symptoms beyond those static questions that are included in, in the questionnaires. But at the time we did this study, we didn't have that kind of capacity or technology. This study was started more than a decade ago. There were no downloadable apps or iPads or iPhones. So we used what we had and and those are the criteria that we used. But, you know, it turns out that we guessed pretty well because the results of testing those symptoms, you know, were pretty meaningful. Yeah, I would say. But if I'm a patient and I'm going to be enrolled in this program, what am I bringing my own device? Are you handing me a device? What kind of training do I need on, on the upfront? What's the onboarding look like from a patient perspective? Yeah, you know, it all depends on the system that's being used in the context. I, I think these days, ideally, you know, it's a BYOD kind of a uh, model, you know, and uh, we hope that people will have a device that they can use, whether it's a phone or a smartphone or, you know, or a computer. And the approaches that, that we use, we try to offer patients different options for self-reporting. So we'll offer a, you know, a, a web-enabled approach that can be accessed either through a smartphone or through a, you know, a tablet or a home computer, but also what we call an IVRS or an interactive voice response system. You know, these are the automated phone systems that people can call into or that can call people where they can you know, hear a message and use a touchpad or use their own voice to, to respond. And I think that having these options is important for a number of reasons. And, you know, we certainly hear this from, you know, my, my patient partners and my patient co-investigators in doing this work. In patients who have illnesses, you know, people may have conditions that make it difficult to use one form versus another, one interface or modality versus another. For those people who have, you know, sensory peripheral neuropathy or tactile issues, they may have more difficulty using an iPad or, you know, touch screening. Um, and we've seen this in studies. Also, we work in patient populations that may have low literacy levels and may have difficulty reading. People who have vision issues may not be able to read a screen. And so for those patients, using an auditory interface may be preferable. On the other hand, we have many patients who have auditory issues and using uh, an automated telephone system may be an impairment and they prefer to use a screen. So by offering a bunch of different options, that gives us choices. Now, as far as onboarding goes, we found that training is pretty quick. We tend to like to have the training done in clinic by a member of the care team uh, who can sit down with the patient for a few minutes, you know, or the patient and the caregiver and do the training. And uh, depending on the level of prior computer or technology avidity of the patient and caregiver, you know, that training can take anywhere from two minutes to 15 minutes. But we found that even among those patients who have very limited prior experience with computers or using questionnaire systems, uh, they're able to get it really fast. In the studies that we've done, we have found that even among older populations that have almost no computer experience, they're really able to catch on very quickly with a lot of success. And of course, you know, in cancer care, you know, people often have caregivers, family members, friends around who can help them. So it's really been the very rare patient that's been unable to pick it up pretty quickly and participate. And you also said that there was kiosks in the office. So if someone was just simply unable to handle either option, either home option, then 
someone could help them when they were in the office on a weekly basis? Yeah, that's right. For those people who can't or or prefer not to self-report from home when they come into the office, we can catch them then. Of course, you know, I think that one of the beauties of the system is that we can enable self-reporting between visits when people, you know, are often out of sight and out of mind. But there's a lot of value to self-reporting at visits too. And in fact, in our study, for those patients who are only able to report in visits, we actually saw you know, substantial benefits for those patients, even though they weren't able to report between visits. Let's talk about this from the clinician side, because one of the, I don't know if it's a criticism, maybe it's more of a fear that clinicians sometimes have when thinking about things like this is I'm busy enough dealing with the patients I see in front of me. Like now there's this. Did this substantially increase the workload? You you know, like what was the experience of the care team working on this? That's a great question because that is a concern that we hear all the time, uh, particularly from nursing staff, because a lot of these alerts will go to to nurses and there is a concern that they'll be flooded by, you know, symptom reports from patients at all hours of the day and that it, you know, will just be overwhelming or require more staff. In our study, we simply didn't find that to be the case. We actually compared the number of calls between nurses and patients between the two groups and found no difference. What happened was that there was a shift in when those calls occurred. You know, those calls were occurring earlier before symptoms became, you know, more severe, but there weren't actually more calls. We also compared the length of visits. You know, we we thought that maybe the visits would get longer because there were more things being reported. We thought maybe the visits would get shorter because there was greater efficiency around discussion of symptoms. And in fact, what we found was there was simply no difference in the length of visits. So it turns out that this probably changes the way that we're delivering care, but it doesn't increase the intensity or, you know, the utilization. Uh, The other thing, though, that we found was that the number of ER visits went down, the number of hospitalizations went down. And so, you know, the overall use of services, if you look, you know, at the big picture, was reduced. So this suggests that maybe we're freeing up resources rather than consuming more uh, more resources. Nonetheless, you know, when a program like this is installed, there has to be, you know, you use the term onboarding for the patients, there has to be onboarding for the staff as well. And I think that means first that leadership has to be engaged and has to be committed and that there have to be in-services for particularly nursing staff, but also for, for physician staff. Uh, that this is something that we're going to be doing and that we're invested in, that's important, uh, because this really does change workflow and information flow. You know, we have to pay attention to that, and that does take effort up front. What are the nurses looking at? Like, is it some, first of all, is this integrated in the EHR system or is this a separate dashboard? So when we started this study, again, you know, more than 10 years ago, uh, there wasn't the kind of proliferation of electronic health records, EHRs, that we see today. So in this study, we used a standalone system. And uh, what the nurses saw was that when there was an alert, it came to their email inbox. It was a standardized alert that would show what symptoms triggered the alert, and it would show the change over time from the prior self-report. The system also generated a longitudinal report that showed all of the symptoms and how they were changing over time. And these were were printed for clinicians at visits as a, you know, as a touch point to, you know, to start conversations about how symptoms were changing over time or, you know, what was getting 
concerning. But these days, more and more information around clinical care is being transacted through the electronic health record. And to me, this is really one of the biggest barriers to these kinds of PRO or patient reported outcome systems becoming uh, a routine part of workflow, which is that it's really been slow for them to be integrated into the electronic health record. So, you know, today it really remains that these are standalone systems where, where a nurse needs to either receive an email and see those symptoms that have changed over time or have triggered an alert or a report that they can log into and see graphically, you know, either through a table or through, you know, a line graph that shows how the symptoms have changed over time. I do think, and we can talk about this a little bit, more and more EHRs are going to be integrating this in, and the clinicians will see this within the EHR. But as it stands now, for most of these systems, it requires the nurses to log into a standalone system to be able to view what the patients are reporting. Yeah, and anytime there's there's change like that, I can I can definitely see what you're saying that you would really need to have leadership support and be able to explain very clearly what the why is, so that the, the staff really understands that this is something which could make a significant difference and is worth taking the time. So, how do you think that an accountable care organization or a provider organization taking a foray into a value-based model, how might this work that you're doing be relevant in those reimbursement scenarios? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, we've seen really substantial interest in entities taking on risk in engaging high-risk populations, you know, particularly chronic illness populations like those with, with advanced or metastatic cancers, uh, to engage them between visits to try to pick up problems before they become severe or lead to downstream utilization and patient reported outcomes is really an ideal tool for monitoring uh, patients between visits. So in these kinds of models of care, setting up PRO systems to monitor patients, particularly those at, at high risk, and you know, pretty much patients who have metastatic cancer receiving uh, systemic chemotherapy or immunotherapy fall into this category. You know, this is a way that utilization can be driven down and that satisfaction scores can be driven up. I think the other potential use is that for those kinds of organizations that are starting to bring on care managers or navigators to connect with patients between visits, again, to try to drive down utilization, systematically collecting PROs can be a really useful tool for those care managers to, you know, to broaden their reach to, you know, larger panels but also to more systematically assess those high-risk patients who they're managing. So, I, you know, overall, I think this is really a, a very useful potential tool in the, uh, in the emerging uh, ACO setting. Where can people find out more information about your work or this study? Sure. So for practices or hospital leaders who are interested in finding out more information. So my study was published in JAMA, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, as well as in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And we've published multiple studies in the Journal of Oncology Practice about how to implement these kinds of systems. Uh, but there are also a couple of good resources that are out there and easy to find. There were two user's guides uh, that had been put out by an organization called ISAQUAL, which is the International Society for Quality of Life Research, uh, one is a user's guide for implementing patient-reported outcomes in clinical care, and that came out a couple of years ago and was just updated. 
And this has very practical advice about how to start implementing in practice around governance, around uh, how to train patients and providers. And then there's a second user's guide that just came out a couple of months ago from Isoqual that was uh, supported by PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And this is a user's guide to integrating patient-reported outcomes into the electronic health record. And this goes through all the different choices that system leaders or clinic leaders or clinicians can and should think about when implementing uh, PROs in the EHR. So these are really both uh, very useful and practical guides. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dr. Ethan Bosch. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed speaking today. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.